Now, this weekend, I want to talk about a really cool story from the book of Ezra. Uh, if you know where the book of Ezra is, go ahead and turn. If you don't, don't even try because by the time you find it, I'll probably be finished, okay? But we will put the slides, the verses up on the side screen. Uh, but to really appreciate Ezra, you have to understand the circumstances under which this book was written. So I'm going to give you a little lesson this weekend in Hebrew history. And I'm going to tell you a story. And it's going to seem like a long story, but you got to see the story if you understand where we're going this weekend with the message. I'm sure all of us remember the story of the Exodus because we've seen the movie, right, with Charlton Heston. And we know how the Jews spent 430 years slaves in Egypt. God finally said, it's time for you to be free. He raised up the deliverer Moses. He went back to Egypt. He led the people after the 10 uh, plagues into freedom. They make it to the Red Sea. When they get to the Red Sea, Pharaoh has second thoughts like, wow, I just let my workforce go. And he decides to send his army to bring them back. But God opens the Red Sea. They walk across on dry land. They get to the other side. Now, this is what maybe you didn't know. Once they got to the other side of the Red Sea, God had already promised to give them the promised land. It was only an 11-day journey by foot through the Sinai Desert. And Moses begins to lead these people. And sure enough, 11 days later, they come up to Kadesh Barnea. They're looking across the Jordan River at the promised land. They decide to send in 12 spies just to make sure what they're up against is, is they're to go in and they're to run out all the inhabitants and they're to conquer the land. And the spies come back, two say, let's do it. 10 say, a lot of giants there, a lot of fortified cities, some powerful armies there. And by a vote, the 10 to 2, they decide not to go in, not to trust God that he, had, he was going to give them the land. And God says, well, if you need to think about it, I'll give you 40 years. And so Moses leads them around in a circle. They're lost for 40 years. During that 40-year period of time, a whole generation of Hebrew people die off. They get back to Kadesh Barnea, back to the Jordan River. 40 years later, Moses dies because he disobeyed God during that 40 years. And part of his disobedient, the punishment, God says, you'll never step foot into the promised land. So under this new leader, Joshua, they go into the promised land. They finally get there. But here's the problem. God said, I want you to run out all the inhabitants of the land. I don't want you mingling with these guys. They failed to do that. And before long, you know, these Hebrew people, they're hanging out with these guys. Their kids are playing soccer together. The guys are going to the sports bar. Women are playing bunco. And before long, you know, they're starting to think, hey, these other people, they're kind of cute. You know, they start dating one another. And then they start falling in love with one another. And then they start intermarrying with these other people who don't even believe in the same God they believe in, who have a totally different belief system. And as you would expect, you know, many, they began to compromise in their allegiance to God. And before long, they weren't following God's principles and his laws and his precepts. But what's interesting is even though these people were so rebellious, God would not give up on his people. I mean, he had incredible patience. In fact, this is why 2 Chronicles 36 verse 15 says this. This is the chapter in 2 Chronicles right before you get to Ezra. It says, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them, that would be the Jews, through his messengers, that would be all the prophets that we read about in the Bible. He sent word to them again and again because he had pity on his people. That means that God looked at these people who were living so rebelliously and out of a heart of compassion, he decided, I'm going to continue to have patience. And, and, and he continued to encourage them to straighten up, to get their act together, to obey his word, to follow him. They just would not listen. I mean, they're like a bunch of teenagers. They're like totally ignoring what God has to say. So you get to verse 16 of 2 Chronicles 36, and it says, They mocked God's messengers, despised his words, scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people, and there was no remedy. That's just a biblical way of saying God said, that's enough. You've crossed the line. 
There needs to be some tough love. You need to learn some hard lessons. So if you have your Bible, 2 Chronicles 36, verse 17, you actually could write in the margin 586 B.C. In 586 B.C., verse 17 says, He, God, brought up against them the king of the Babylonians, that was King Nebuchadnezzar, who killed their young men with a sword in the sanctuary, spared neither young man nor young woman, old man or aged. He, Nebuchadnezzar, carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. So in the Old Testament, think about it. This, this temple that David had planned and eventually Solomon, his son, built, it's destroyed. Jerusalem is basically reduced to a pile of ashes. Most people are killed except a few of the young, brightest Jewish uh, men and women, and they're taken off to be slaves in Babylon. See, this is where we get the stories of like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. This is where we get the stories of like Daniel in the lion's den. It's, it's while they're captive in Babylon. And this period of time, this is what is known in Hebrew history as the Babylonian captivity. And these Jews remained captive in Babylon for 70 years, but in the back of their mind, there was a little bit of hope that one day this captivity would end. And it was based on something that the prophet Jeremiah said years earlier when he kept saying, if you don't get your act together, God's gonna have to come in, he's gonna have to step in, he's gonna have to show you some tough love. But this is what the prophet Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 29 verse 10. He said to the people, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. In other words, after you've been captive for 70 years, God says, I'm gonna be faithful and I'm gonna bring you back to Jerusalem. I'm gonna set you free. In other words, there's gonna be a second exodus. Just as your forefathers exited Egypt and made their way to the promised land, after you've been captive in Babylon for 70 years, I am gonna free you and you're gonna make your way back to the promised land. You're gonna make your way back to Jerusalem. And sure enough, after 70 years, Babylon falls to Persia. Uh, the history gets a little bit complicated and boring, but once again, the Bible is proven to be right. I mean, this is proven by historical facts. It proves to be accurate. Because when Babylon fell to Persia, right away Cyrus, the king of Persia, for no logical reason, decides to look on these Jewish people with favor. And he decides he's going to let them go back to their homeland. He's going to let them go back to Jerusalem. And he's going to allow them to rebuild the temple. And he's going to send them back under the name of a guy, a guy by the name of Zerubbabel. Isn't that a great name? Let's just say it together. Zerubbabel. Doesn't that just make your lips feel cool? Zerubbabel. And you think, well, they heard weird names in the Old Testament. And I thought that was true too until I started doing baby dedications. I mean, I don't know what you young parents are thinking, but what you're naming their kids these days, it's, it's like you want them to be beat up and bullied when they get to school. You know, in the old days, let me show you how we spelled Frank, but this is how new parents spell Frank, you know, if they want to name their kid Frank. It's just weird what's going on there, okay? So maybe that's what's going on with Zerubbabel's parents, okay? We got Zerubbabel. And he says, listen, Zerubbabel, I want you to take these people back to Jerusalem. And when you get there, I want you to rebuild the temple. Now, you got you to make sure you get this. Here's the situation. We have a pagan, unbelieving king. And not only is he sending them back to Jerusalem to build a temple to a God that he doesn't believe in, he decides that he's also going to finance the rebuilding of this temple to a God that he doesn't even believe in. 
So Zerubbabel, he gets the people back to Jerusalem. Sure enough, they start on the temple. However, some of the surrounding nations aren't all that thrilled with Israel being back. They're not all that thrilled with, with the Jewish people becoming a superpower again. See, some things never change, right? So these nations, they get together, the governors, and they write this letter to King Cyrus basically saying, have you lost your mind? Don't you realize that if you send these Jews back and, and they get reestablished in the land, they're going to be a pain in our neck for centuries. So the surrounding nations, they get involved and they stop the rebuilding of the temple. And this goes back and forth for years. The Jews would start the temple, they would stop the temple. They would start the temple, they would stop the temple. It's utter chaos. Fast forward with me. Stick with me. There's a point to this. Four kings and 38 years later, King Darius comes along. He's the king of Persia. And one day he's reading through the history of the country. He's looking through the archives and he discovers that years earlier, King Cyrus had commissioned the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, but he also discovers that the project had never been completed. So he contacts the surrounding nations, the surrounding governors, and he basically says this, not only are you to stop harassing the Jewish people, you're to get involved with them and you're to help them rebuild the temple to their God that King Cyrus didn't believe in and I don't believe in either. But what I want you to see in this story is this, God uses these unbelieving kings to build a temple to a God they don't even believe in. Why is that? It's because God used them to facilitate his plan. Now, let me tell you something. When God has a plan and God wants it to be accomplished, he will use who is ne whoever is necessary, believer or unbeliever, to accomplish his plan. And sure enough, Ezra chapter 6, verse 14, the Jews went back to work and they finally finished the temple and then they started working on rebuilding the city and then remember Nehemiah came back and he helped rebuild the wall and they reestablished the nation just as God had promised. 20 years go by. Now we're 130 years since Nebuchadnezzar went into Jerusalem and destroyed it. Another amazing thing happens. King Darius dies. Now there's another new king on the throne. His name is King Artaxerxes. He is the most powerful leader in the most powerful nation at that time. And one day, for no apparent reason, we don't know why, Artaxerxes gets the idea. See, he, he realizes that all of this gold, all of this silver, all of the temple vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had stolen 130 years early, that they had in a vault right there in Persia. And he decides that he's going to give all the gold, all the silver, all the temple vessels that were stolen by Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to, when he's stored in Jerusalem, he wants it now to go all back to Israel. Now understand, this is stuff that no Jew has seen for 130 years. I mean, the last time they saw the temple vessels, the gold and the silver, was when Nebuchadnezzar was loading it up to haul it off to Babylon. They haven't even seen this stuff. It's been locked up. It's been kept intact by the enemies of Israel for over 130 years. And now Artaxerxes, he calls in Ezra. There's the guy of the hour. And he says, Ezra, I want you to do something for me. I want you to take all this gold, all this silver, all the temple vessels back to Jerusalem. And, and it, hits, it, hit, it hits Ezra. It's like the light comes on. It just dawns on him that God is alive, that God is working, that he is keeping his promise. His plan to restore Israel is coming to pass. But here's the problem. When they start stacking this treasure, they realize this isn't going to be an easy task because this is 25 tons, 50,000 pounds of gold and silver and temple vessels. Now, that's not the problem. 
The problem is that the temple is located 900 miles away. And in those days, that was a four, a four month journey through the desert. And all of a sudden, Ezra's celebration is cut short because he realizes, whoa, 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 wait a second. I'm excited to have all this treasure to take back to Jerusalem. But when word hits the street that we're going on this four month journey through the desert with 25 tons of gold and silver, I mean, we'll be lucky to get back to Jerusalem with our lives, much less all of this wealth. But at the same time, he's torn because He's trying to keep into perspective that God is, work, is at work and he's doing something special, that this is a God thing. So here is Ezra sitting on this great gift from God. Now pay attention, stick with me. Sitting on this great opportunity, but he's also afraid that he might die trying to get it back to Jerusalem. So initially Ezra thinks, I'll just go to Artaxerxes and I'll just ask for an armed guard to help me get it all back. I mean, that seems like the simple thing to do. But then he remembers, man, I've been telling everybody just how great our God is. And, and, and so if I go back and ask for an armed escort, they're going to be like, wait a second, I thought your God was so great. Can he protect you on your journey back to Jerusalem? And Ezra decides that's not the right thing to do. That's, the bad, that's, that's a bad idea. And so Ezra does what we do when we can't think of anything else, we pray, okay? So Ezra begins to pray and he begins to fast and God gives him a plan. The plan was pretty simple. He said, basically, uh, you're to put together, you get, uh, identify 24 leaders, have each of those leaders put together a crew, and then Ezra, you're divide, to divide up all of the treasure among these 24 crews, and then you're to stagger as they leave, send them at different times across the desert. This way, they're not going across like in a caravan with 25 tons of gold and silver, basically with a neon blinking sign that says, we're rich, rob us. See, that's not going to go on. We'll stagger it, and it won't be so obvious. And then Ezra says, on a certain date, we're going to meet at the temple in Jerusalem, and we'll count the loot, we'll weigh the gold and silver, we'll see how much actually made it back. So they start off on the journey, Ezra leads the way, and it says in Ezra chapter eight, verse 31, he says, the hand of God was on us and he protected us from enemies and bandits along the way. So we arrived in Jerusalem where we rested for three days. Look at verse 33. On the fourth day in the house of God, we weighed out the silver and the gold and the sacred articles, verse 34, everything, everything was accounted for. And I'm sure there's some high-fiving and great party and celebration, fireworks probably, champagne corks popping all over the place, right? Because they realize God has pulled off a miracle. God has intervened. Not only has God restored the nation, not only has God restored the people, not only has God restored the temple, God has also restored their wealth. I mean, it is an incredible story. That's why you should probably read the Bible. But here's my question. Here's my question. Why would these pagan, unbelieving kings do so much? Why would they be so committed to help a group of people rebuild a temple to a God they don't even believe in? Well, this is a reminder of one of the greatest principles in the Bible. It's found in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8. This is what it says. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. You know, what that, you know what God's saying there? He's saying, I don't do things the way you do things. I do things sometimes from your humanistic perspective, it's gonna seem weird. The way I do things sometimes from your perspective, it's gonna seem illogical. It's not gonna make any sense to you, but sometimes God says, I do things and all you can do is trust me and go with it. In other words, just like with Ezra, 
Every once in a while, God gives us, sometimes as individuals, sometimes as churches, opportunities to do unusual things, God things. But when those moments come, we find out, do we have the courage to take advantage of the opportunity that God has put in front of us? Now, if I stop there, this would just be a really cool lesson from the Old Testament that maybe you now know something about Hebrew history you didn't know before. But I got to tell you, uh, you know, often when I'm doing a series or a message, I just kind of read the same thing over and over and over and over again. And it's amazing when you read it over and over again, how things begin to come to the surface you'd never seen before. So there's some lessons about hope and our future that pop out of this. I just want to share with you. Here's the first one. God has allowed our church to find favor with those who don't even believe what we believe. I mean, this kind of crazy. I don't know about you, but I've never been involved with a church where so many unbelieving people had so much interest in church. I was reminded of that recently when we were just wrapping up the Love Different series, and I think it was in the seventh or eighth week, and one day out under the portico, a guy walked up to me and he says, I started coming to the church during the series. And he said, I want you to know, he, he says, I'm an atheist. I don't even believe in God. I don't believe the Bible. But he says, what's impressed me about this series is you've talked about the fact that Christians have a bad reputation in the world how they're seen, how they're perceived. And part of the reason is because we don't love one another, we don't forgive one another, we don't treat one another the way God has loved and forgiven and treated us. He said, that's impressed me. He said, so I'm gonna keep attending. And then this is what he said. Do you think there's any way maybe I could get involved around here? You think I could serve? And I'm like, are you kidding me? I can't even get the Christians who attend here who believe in God and believe the Bible to serve, right? And you want to serve? Yeah, I'll find you a place to serve. He's speaking next week, and no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. You know. When Saturday morning I walked in, there's a guy walking around the atrium. And I could tell he was looking for something. So I said, sir, can I help you? And uh, he looked at me, and he walked over, and he says, are you in charge? And I looked around. I didn't see Laura, and I said, yes, I am. Yes, I am. You know? And this is his story. He says, I'm Muslim. I moved here with my family. I'm open to business as a mattress store. And I wanted to know, would you be interested in advertising our mattress store? And everybody from your church who buys a mattress, I will give 10% back to what you're trying to accomplish as a church. I'm like, wait a second. I can't even get the Christians who go to Hope to tithe. I got a Muslim who doesn't even believe in the same God I believe in, doesn't even read the same book that I read, saying, I will tithe back to your church if you want to advertise. I have a friend at the gym. He, he doesn't know Jesus from a lizard. I mean, he's as lost as he could be. But he came one time. He finally came. And I walk up the other day, and he's talking to a group of guys. He's telling them all about Hope Community Church and why they should go to Hope Community Church. And he's explaining our mission and vision better than I can, right? And I'm like, we hear stories like this all the time. Unbelieving people, for some reason, have interest with what God is doing here. I don't know how long it's going to last. But for the time being, God has provided us with some amazing opportunities. He's given us favor in the eyes of people who don't even believe what we believe. People, maybe they're just trying to figure out. And I don't know why. And I'm not sure I need to know why. I just know a lot of people come here. They leave still not believing what we believe. Still not agreeing with us when we talk about the Bible. But you come back the next week. And I just want to tell you, I am so glad you're here. You're like my favorite people. But we have a saying around here. I hope you keep coming because if you hang around the pond long enough, maybe you'll fall in. Maybe you'll buy into this whole thing and you'll see how Jesus Christ came to radically change your life. So I get that lesson. 
Here's another one that jumped out of the story. This is, this is more for me, but I'm going to share it with you. This is the lesson I got from just reading about Ezra. I have got to start leading this church with courage. Let me tell you where I got that. Right after Ezra realizes that God has given them this incredible opportunity, it's up to Ezra where, whether he's going to act on it or not. It says this in Ezra 7, chapter, uh, verse 27. Praise be to the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put in the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way, and who has extended his good favor to me before the king, who was an unbeliever, and his advisors, who were unbelievers, and all the king's powerful officials, who were unbelievers. Now notice the next phrase. Because the hand of the Lord my God was upon me, I took courage. In other words, when Ezra realized that God was at work, when he realized the opportunity that God had given these people, Ezra said, man, the light went on, it clicked. I realized at that moment I had to act. I had to lead regardless of the risk. Now, let's be honest, put in that same situation, we could come up with all kinds of reasons to play it safe. Ezra could have said, you know, I like Persia. I'm used to Persia. I like Persian rugs. My kids go to great Persian schools, right? Why in the world would I want to uproot my family and move them back to Jerusalem? I hear that place is a disaster. He could have said that. But he said, he said in verse 28, I took courage. I stepped out. Now, I'm, I'm just going to be honest with you. There are some areas where I feel like I do a pretty good job as a leader, but there are some areas where I have failed you miserably when it comes to leading you. There are just some areas where I, haven't, I just have not led with diligence. And sometimes it's because, you know, I'm afraid of being misunderstood, you know. Sometimes it's because I, I want you to like me. It's a huge character flaw, but I, you know, I, I like people to like me. But this verse in Ezra reminds me that God has given us some incredible opportunities here at Hope Community Church. He, for some reason, has blessed us like crazy. But if we're going to take advantage of the opportunities that God has given us, I have got, I got to put my big boy panties on and I got to start leading this church forward. I can't get comfortable with what God has accomplished here. I can't get lazy. I can't get complacent. I can't get to the point where I don't want to rock the boat or I don't want to make waves because I'm not even sure we've scratched the surface of what God wants to do here through our church. And you guys know that Laura and I were gone for a couple of weeks, and we were gone for a couple of reasons. One, our anniversary's coming up, our 35th, and as it gets closer to Christmas, there's no way we can go. Plus, we have a grandbaby coming on Tuesday, and so a lot of things going on. That was part of it. But, you know, December 1st will be the 20th anniversary of the day we landed here to start the church. And we thought, well, let's throw ourselves a little celebration and go away. And, 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 as, and as we were thinking over this, and, and I guess because of different things going on, and maybe my age, you know, I, I, feel, I feel like, you know, God's been kind of saying to me, you know, I'm not done with you yet. I think part of it, like I said, you get 57, you realize you got less time to do what you want to do than you've had in the past. And then Laura doesn't help. She, still, she now buys me vitamins, the brand name Sundown. What does that say? <laughs> time is fading, buddy. You know, do something fast, you know. And... Uh, I think what God is saying to me is, yeah, you, you, you don't have 20 years left. You've been here for 20 years. You certainly don't have 20 years left. I hope I have another good 10 or 12 maybe in me. I don't know. But I think what God is saying is, hey, Mike, when it comes to hope, this isn't the end. 
This is just the beginning. So for the period of time I still have you there, you need to lead with diligence. You need to lead with courage, which brings me to the third lesson. And this is my carnal side. As I was reading this story, my, one of my first reactions was, hey, God, uh, why don't you dump 25 tons of silver on us, you know, and gold? Why did the Old Testament, why, did, why, did they, why does it get all the old, good miracles? Why can't we have a miracle like? It would be like on Monday, Wells Fargo calling me and say, hey, Mike, listen, we really appreciate having you guys as a customer. We have $25 million in the vault here. We don't really know what to do with it. If you want it, come on down here and get it, you know. And I'd call the, all the soccer moms with their minivans, and we'd go down there. You know, we'd load up $25 million, I'd bring it back, and we'd have all the money to do whatever we felt like we needed to do. But then it hit me, and here's the lesson. God has already provided us with all we need to take advantage of the opportunities he's given to us. There's plenty of money. It's just in our bank accounts. And because I'm such a coward, uh, I haven't had the courage to try, to try to get it out. And as I said, part of it's because I don't want to be misunderstood, but I just haven't had the courage to try to collect it. And I thought, this is what's interesting. When it comes to some topics of the Christian life, I will flat wear you out. I will get on a soapbox and I will preach and preach and preach and hammer and hammer and hammer and I will bug you until you'll finally say, okay, I'll get in a small group or okay, I'll serve other people or okay, I'll invite people to church. If you'll just shut up talking about it, I will do it. I mean, I will wear you out. And I don't even mind coming on strong and asking for money for other organizations. I have no problem getting up in front of you saying, we need to raise a half million dollars for Jim Hawking and ICDI so we can continue to drill, drill wells in Africa. I don't mind saying, we need, we need to raise hundreds of thousands of dollars for Watoto so we can continue to build orphan villages and a new worship center for a, a bunch of people, a bunch of children up in Google. I have no problem doing that. There have been times where I have been incredibly bold and I challenge you to do things like leave your coat you remember that weekend? I don't even know what I was talking about. That's part of being 57. But I just remember part of the application with that day was, you have plenty of coats at home. Leave the one you got this weekend because we're going to give them to people in our community who need them more than we do. And you guys all left your coats. The, the spiritual ones did. And we, we, and we walked out cold that day. And there was another time I said, leave your shoes. You got lots of shoes, and we gave you those little silly blue booties like you wear in the hospital, and we went to the restaurants after church and looked like idiots, but we left our shoes. I didn't have a problem asking you to do that. I'll never forget one weekend with a, a young Raleigh police officer took his life, and his widow was left here with a one-year-old and a two-year-old child to raise. And that weekend, I said, when you leave, there are guys standing at the back door with buckets. This is not the offering. This is not your giving. I want you to empty your wallets. I want you to empty your purses into that bucket. And every penny that goes in that bucket, we're going to give to this young girl who just became a widow. And we raised over $60,000 as you were walking out of the doors. I mean, there are times I have been incredibly bold. But when it comes to pushing you that strong about your financial commitment and your financial participation here at Hope Community Church. I'm kind of a wuss. And so I'm going to just admit it. And as I said earlier, part of the reason is because I don't want to be misunderstood. Part of the reason is I know you bring your friends and I know, in fact, you're, maybe you're visiting today, you hate preachers when they talk about money. I'm sensitive to that and I get that. But I got to tell you, part of the reason is because you do a pretty good job of giving without me having to say anything. I mean, this year you will give about $12 million to this church. That's with no campaign. 
That's with no red thermometer. You ever been to a church where they have the thermometer on the wall? That's without us passing offering plates up and down the road. Like, oh, here it comes. Put something in, honey. Everybody's looking. Without any of that kind of pressure. You just gave. And it's easy for me to look at that. $12 million. Wow. You know what I think God does? I think he looks at it and says, are you kidding me? God is not impressed. You know why? That's not our potential. That's not our. One of the reasons we've never reached our potential, we've never reached our capacity, is because I've never really pushed you. We've done series where I've pushed you to be a good spouse, to be a good friend. This year we did a series, you at work, I pushed you to be a good boss, a good employee, a good child. I've pushed you to be a good servant. But I can look at $12 million and say, that's not bad. I guess we're doing okay. But that's not our potential. That's our casual giving habits. Our real potential is double, maybe triple that. And I have statistics to back it up. I was told by my finance team this week, when you get right down to it, about 25, 27% of our congregation keep this place running. They pay the bills, they pay the mortgage, they keep the lights on, they pay the staff, they make sure that our missionaries are taken care of, that we can do our projects in the community. About 25 to 27%. You know what that tells me? There's about 75% of you who are just taking a free ride with the wind blowing through your hair and just enjoying the good life, right? In fact, if you hear a sucking noise, that's you sucking the life out of the other 25%. That's what they feel like right now, okay? So what if we could get... 50%. Well, now our potential is not 12 million, but 23, 24, 25 million. And what if we got 75%? See, that's why I know we haven't reached our potential. With very little effort, we could be generating twice, three times what we generate now. And some of you are thinking this. Yeah, but Mike, look at this place. Do we really need it? Do we really need it? Well, let me tell you something. If I'm a good leader, you'll never feel like we need it. Because I, I invite my unchurched friends here, and I don't want them walking out thinking, wow, that, that money, that church really needs money. So don't think of it, do they need it? Think of it this way. You give money to Starbucks, don't you? You give a lot of money to Target and Macy's. Laura said the mall was so crowded yesterday she could barely walk around. We give money. Let me ask you something. Do they need it? And let me ask you another question. You give to all these different places. When your life blows up, your kid goes AWOL or prodigal. When your marriage begins to fall apart, are you going to call the CEO of Target or Starbucks or Macy's and see how they can help you? You know who you're going to call? Me. You're going to call one of our staff. You're going to say, can you help me? And let me ask you something. If that's where you know it's going to help, if that's how you know that's where it's going to make a difference in my life, then why in the world wouldn't you want to give to that? So don't think of it. Thank you, Mac. Not a matter of need. Think of it this way. God has provided us with some incredible opportunities in our community and in the world. And we're either going to get the job done or we won't. I'll give you some examples. Holly Springs, 
We sent out a few hundred people to Holly Springs High School. Now they have over 1,500 in the weekend. Their auditorium is full, both services. They actually have a band room that will hold about 100 people. People leave the auditorium and they've gone to the band room where they actually watch me on a screen and have a guy with a, an acoustic guitar leading worship. And they've moved to the band room to free up seats in the auditorium because new people are still coming and they wanna make sure there's room for them. We gotta build them a facility. That could be a campus of five to 6,000 people. And we are negotiating with 20 acres. We've made an offer, they've countered. We've countered back. But when we get this property, it's probably going to cost us eight, nine million dollars to build a facility that will hold that many people every weekend having Saturday and Sunday services. That's a lot of money. West Cary, we've just secured uh, 40,000 square feet, West Cary and Mooresville out on Airport Boulevard. And it's going to cost us about one and a half to two million dollars to upfit that building to, to have the fill of Hope Community Church, the Kid City, all of the things that make it so easy for us to invite our guests and our friends to really be able to talk about how Jesus Christ could change their life. That's a lot of money. We've been partnering with Ship of Zion down in Southeast Raleigh because they're doing such a phenomenal job of reaching that community. We brought Chris and Jacqueline Jones on staff with us here at Hope. Let me show you the building that they meet in. That's it, bullet holes all over it. I mean, I don't know how the city hasn't condemned it. Let me show you a building that's 50 yards away and it's gonna be for sale in about a week. I wanna buy them that building. Because I believe that they're seeing gang members and prostitutes and drug dealers come to Christ. They are changing that community from the inside out. Don't you want to be a part of something like that? You know, we have our first international campus in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. Uh, the first service is going to be January the 5th. We've had staff going down training the small group leaders already. Well, they, they have, they're building their core. They had an outreach event for children and they had over 800 children and 250 adults that show up. I got a picture of what that building's gonna look like, one of the few buildings standing after the earthquake. And we're showing, this is for the children's event. In fact, you can see the children that crowded in there that day. And, that, and that's, we hadn't even started the church yet. We don't even have a service to January the 5th. And God, I think it's gonna be, I think that campus is gonna be two to 3,000 people by the end of 2014. And that's just one, maybe just the first of 10, 12, 15 campuses that we're gonna have in Port-au-Prince so that we can begin to change the character and integrity of that nation through Jesus Christ and change them from the inside out. Don't you wanna be a part of something like that? We have three campuses now. I have a 2020 initiative that by 2020, we will have six. We want to add a campus in North Raleigh. We want to have a campus in Apex. We want to put a campus in the Garner-Clayton area. But to do that, it, 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 this is all part of reaching the triangle and changing the world. That will give us, with multiple services, over 30,000 seats every weekend where we can continue to invest and pour into people's lives. I mean, isn't that something that you want to be a part of? But I'm not going to lie to you, to do those things is going to take an enormous amount of money. We're talking 20, 30, 40 million dollars and above our regular giving. And I look at that and think, we will never do it. That's impossible. But then I remember, wait a second. God's already given us the money. Everything we have is from him. It's in our bank accounts. I just stink at collecting it. So as the leader of this church... At least for the time being, there's an elder meeting Monday night. This could all change. But uh, <laughs> as of right now, I have a choice to make. I can lead you in every area except this one. Man, I can say, use your time the right way. Use your talents the right way. Or I can lead you in every area that God has called me in. And that includes not just our time, not just our talent. It includes our treasure and our finances. So I have to lead you in this area by telling you we're doing a pretty good job, but we're not doing what we could do and we're not doing what we should do.
And I believe if we don't step up to the plate, we will miss the opportunity of a lifetime. Very few churches ever get the opportunities we have before us. And we'll either take advantage of the situation by being good stewards and good managers of what God has given us, or we won't. And I might just add here, it would be really easy for me to just ignore the opportunities and do nothing. I'm not kidding. I have a pretty good life right now. I have an incredible wife. I have a wonderful family. I have a nice home. I collect a nice salary. I get to pastor a great church. Man, I was standing out this morning, this worshiping with you, and I heard you sing, take my life and let it be. I just, I just wept. I thought, I get to be a part of this. So I don't need this. I don't need the emails I'm going to get or the mean things you're going to say on Facebook. And I could just coast. I'm 57. I'm on sundown vitamins. You know, I mean, <laughs> the end is near, right? I don't need this. And what's interesting, you don't need it either. You figured this out. You know, you know where to park. You know when to get in here to get the right seat. You know how to make sure your kid gets in Kid City before they're full and we have to close the rooms because they're at capacity. You've even figured out, give certain workers 20 bucks, they'll keep your kid for an extra hour so you can go to Bojangles for lunch afterwards and then come back and get them. I mean, you figured it out. You know the deal. You figured out the ropes. In fact, if we could just lose a few thousand people, life would be awesome. You know, elbow room. No more Saturday night services. That'd be awesome. I could go to college football games. I could watch the Duke juggernaut in person, live, right? I could do that. Better parking situations. You don't want to do that. Do you know why? Because our mission, our vision isn't about being big. Our mission and vision isn't about being full. It's about loving people where they are and encouraging them to grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. And we believe that by doing that one life at a time, we can reach the triangle and change the world. And I believe that God has given us the opportunity to see that mission and vision become a real reality. But it's going to take a commitment to the biblical principles of generosity that God has laid out for us in his word. I've used it before. Let me just keep this simple for you. Here's the plan God came up with. Every time God gives you 10 of these, you give one back to the ministry of Hope Community Church. Now, some of you went to Carolina, so let me show you that again, okay? <laughs> Just stick with me. Every time God gives you 10 of these, you give one back to the ministry of Hope Community Church, and you get to keep nine that he also gave you that's also his to do pretty much whatever you want to do. You just give one back to him. Now, and what's so cool, it works. It's so easy. Like God says, I know most of you aren't that good at math. I'm going to keep it simple. Every time you get 100 of these, just take off a zero and you give 10. See, every time you get a thousand, you give a hundred. Every time you get 10,000, you give a thousand. Every time God gives you a hundred thousand of these, you give 10,000. Every time God gives you a million of these, yeah, every time God gives you a million, right? You just give a hundred thousand dollars. And if we would do this based on our congregation, based on the average income of this area, we would easily generate 20, 25, 30 million dollars a year for kingdom work. Can you imagine what we could pull off if we had that kind of commitment? We could build a campus every time God says, I want you to build a campus. See, I still want to build campuses in Durham and Chapel Hill. We could do that. We could fund every project we saw around the world that needed to be funding. We wouldn't even have to break a sweat. And I know what some of you Bible scholars are thinking, Mike, I don't believe the, old, the New Testament teaches tithing. I think that's an Old Testament thing. I, I've heard you for years. To which I respond, do you really want to know about New Testament giving? I mean, think about this. Every time Jesus dealt with the Old Testament and the law, did he dumb down the law or did he raise the standard? I mean, think about it. 
Jesus said, hey, the Old Testament law said, thou shalt not commit adultery. You know what Jesus said? Don't even think about lusting. Wow, that's a whole new standard. The Old Testament law said, thou shalt not murder. Jesus said, forget that. Don't even hate people. I mean, can you imagine what Jesus would say about giving? He's like, you don't even want to know, right? So don't think of it as tithing. Think of it as common sense. And I want you to know that I don't ask you to do anything I'm not willing to do. Uh, Laura and I give more than 10% right off the top to the Ministry of Hope Community Church. And we have since the beginning. And then after we give that to Hope Community Church, yeah, we sponsor orphans in Africa. Yeah, we'll give money to help drill wells and CAR. Yeah, we'll give to Young Life because they will just wear you out until you finally give to them. I mean, that's just the way those Young Life people are, right? And I don't say that to you to brag. You just need to expect that from me as your leader. So here's my challenge. Let's rise to a level of commitment like no church in America has ever risen. Let's be biblical. Let's be obedient to God and let's, let's give one for every 10 to the opportunities that God has given us. And, and Laura and I, when we were away, we were talking about it and she went online. We give our automatic draft and, and we upped our giving again, to which I like to say, I up mine, up yours. And uh, I think that's a great t-shirt. I don't know why we're not wearing those things, right? You know, the Bible doesn't say you stop at 10%. So if you're giving 10%, 12%, 14%, could you add another percentage? Maybe you're not giving anything. Could you at least start with 1% or 3% and, and say the goal is to get the 10% and then to, to eventually do even more for the kingdom of God? You say, well, Mike, you just don't know my financial situation, my debt. Well, we have a bunch of slides here. Uh, I mean, a bunch of classes here. We have a slide of it. And you know what? We, we've had people at Hope pay over a million dollars worth of credit card debt so that they could better position themselves for the kingdom of God. These classes will be coming up in January, you may want to check those out. But this is what I believe we'll experience if we do this. When we show that we're trustworthy with what God gives us, he'll give us even more opportunities. You say, Mike, what does this got to do with worship? Well, I'll tell you what. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, I want you to crawl up on the altar, present yourselves a living sacrifice you know what the last part of us to get on the altar of God, to, to sacrifice to God? Our wallets, our purses, our finances. But I think when we get it there, God says, now I can do incredible things through you because now I got it all. Now I got it all. Father, thank you that you give us everything we have. You could cut us off in a skinny minute. but you pour out your blessings on us and you make more promises about investing in your kingdom than any other, any other promises in the scripture, more connected with how we manage our finances and leverage them for you than anything else. So either, either you take care of us, either you meet our needs, not our greeds, either you meet our needs when we sow bountifully or you're a liar. And God, I know you're not a liar. So give us the ability to be courageous for you. And may we step out on faith. And may we be willing to take the risk because we know that you're going to be faithful. And Father, this isn't just about the church having plenty of money to do incredible things with. This is about how you intimately change our lives because now we're trusting you with every area of our lives. And you're basically saying, I've got your back. I've got your back. Seek first the kingdom of God 
And all these things will be added unto you. Thank you, God, for your faithfulness. In your name we pray. Amen.